1: Welcome to our show. I'm producer Jason Dawes, and here with me are our hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and Dr. Levi Russell, and my fellow graduate assistant, Jacob Michael.
2: All right, so today we have a special treat. We have Professor Anthony Gill with us. Anthony is a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington. He's also an adjunct professor of sociology, um, and he's a distinguished senior fellow at Baylor University's Institute for Studies on Religion. Um, and so he's uh, sort of well known on, on, on the whole intersection of political economy and faith and religion and things like this. And what we wanted to talk to him about today was some of his research on the idea of tipping, uh, you know, so people tipping waiters or people like that and in service industry uh, type of things. And so we wanted to kind of get his perspective on this. He has an article that I'll link to. In an I never want a
0: tip for my luggage. Does that make me a bad yeah. person? Like when, when I'm at a well, hotel, you're cheap. So it you know, is true. That's why, cheap, I, it. that's why you don't. Want that's why you That's the one that always bugs me the most. Is like I, I kind of want to get the exercise of taking my luggage, and then it's like, oh, oh well, that <laughs> you was don't a, want them to the well, service. Well, yeah. It okay. <laughs> was like, oh, no, that wasn't that hard, but a yeah. buck seems too little, and five bucks seems too much. I feel so bad because I didn't even know that was expected. Well, it, you know, depending on the customs of the area, but yeah. Say, sometimes have extra long presence of standing in your front door. <laughs> and you're like, oh okay, thanks for the luck. Yeah, right. <laughs> they paying you? Okay. So, Tony, uh, you go by Tony, is that right, or is it Anthony?
3: Yeah, it is Tony. And I okay. always make sure that I do tip the bellhop at hotels because when I'm looking for a restaurant, I want to make sure that they uh, direct me in the, the best restaurants possible. Yeah. Uh, I, I, next time I'm with you at a hotel at a conference, uh, I'm definitely not going to uh, go to the restaurants you go to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Is that why they always refer to me McDonald's and Wendy's? Yeah, right. uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, we don't have anything down
2: here. You're gonna have to go to Sonic.
0: <laughs> it all makes sense. Okay.
2: <laughs> so I guess, but but does that make but does that make your tipping better, Tony? Because Russ doesn't tip. I mean, how, how does... Oh, I'm making him look good. Yeah, how
3: does that work? Oh, absolutely. So when I'm at a hotel, I will make sure that I tip the bellhop and the concierge and uh, all those. And I actually carry around smiley buttons too, which are very effective. And people recognize me when I come back down the elevator and they say, Oh, Professor Gill, where where can we uh, help you get to today? And I'm like, uh-huh. that, that is good. For a couple bucks and a smiley pin, it's worth that extra bit of customized
0: service. Yeah, yeah, yep. I can uh, see that. So, yeah, well, why don't you take it away, Tony? Uh, lead into kind of your topic area on, on the tipping and, and why it's a, a bit of a puzzle for economists, maybe?
3: Yeah, this is uh, a little bit of an offbeat topic for me because I usually study church-state relations, but I've been teaching political economy now for about 25 years. And I always ask my students this one puzzle that just irritates most economists is why do people leave tips at restaurants they know they're never going to come back to. And it basically pushes toward this issue of whether or not people are truly rational. Now, we were just talking about tipping a bellhop or a concierge. And one of the reasons I do that is because I tip them. And the next day or in the evening, I expect a little bit of customized service. They'll point me to the Best restaurant to go to, or they'll help me with the luggage. But if you're going to go to a restaurant you know you're never going to come back to, why would anybody ever want to tip? And that has flummoxed economists, uh, the like of Milton Friedman and a lot of other people for a long time. And my students love talking about it because everybody has experienced uh, being in a restaurant and tipping. A lot of people are very frustrated with when do I tip, how much do I tip, the service wasn't that good, should I still tip. Uh, so it's, it's a great topic for students to investigate a lot of different aspects of political economy.
0: Yeah, it was interesting that you said on the customs of different places too, at least in your article. Um, I don't know if we've talked about it as much here, but I just got back from Guatemala and Prior to that, I was in South Africa and I I, I checked the like TripAdvisor or something like, you know, what should I tip in South Africa or what should I tip in Guatemala and, and kind of learn the customs? Because some of them, it's more like 10 percent actually in both places was kind of custom for a meal. But for a driver and for other people, usually you don't tip or a tips not. Um, expected. Uh, so there's kind of interesting things online if you if you travel around to learn the different customs and norms that are in different countries with tipping. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Okay. That is one of the more frustrating things about the normative tradition. And it's an interesting thing, not only for economists, but for sociologists, is that why do these norms arise in some places, but not in other places? Tipping is a unique norm. It generated or it um, came about a long time ago that most people think about the 17th century in England and it seems to have spread throughout the kind of the British Empire and then also extended into other places in Europe and in Latin America but there are certain parts of the world such as Asia where it is not that common and if you are a traveler yeah it makes
0: a lot of sense to say hmm what should I be tipping here if at all mm. yeah. And so how can this be advantageous um, for the restaurant? Like you make an argument that they might be able to do better business. It's a win-win situation, win-win-win situation um, between the potential principal agent problem of the restaurant owner and the employee, the wait staff, and then the customer, kind of
2: those three agents. Well, because, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, in their mind, it almost seems baked in now with us because you know, there's this alternative minimum wage for, uh, you know, for weight staff, you know, mm-hmm. so they only get paid like two fifty an hour. And so it's sort of like, everybody knows that, that the restaurant owner, you know, doesn't have to pay them very much. And so they don't. And so then that means they got to throw in money from a tip. And so it almost, it almost, because you know, that there's this, it's almost like the, the, the laws have re- responded to the institution of tipping. And so then, the fact that that law is different it makes the rest of us think, okay, well we have to we have to fill the gap that five dollar gap between two fifty an hour and the and the, you know the normal minimum well, Antonio, wage. Well, Tony,
0: it seems like your your price discrimination argument kind of comes after the fact, describing like it was not by design at all. But it's an interesting thing that I hadn't really thought about until I read your article. So you want to just kind of talk about that for a little bit?
3: Yeah, let's talk about the two basic economic reasons why tipping is used. You mentioned the principal agent problem a minute ago, and the idea behind the principal agent problem is that you have a principal or a boss or an employer who wants an agent, an employee, to do something, and that agent might wanna shirk or not give 100% of their effort. So how do you motivate that employee to do what you want them to do, especially when you can't be watching them all the time? It'd be kind of dumb for a restaurant owner to
0: watch their waitstaff all the time because they might as well be doing it themselves anyways. So what – I think that was an interesting part of your argument that I hadn't thought of. of the time needed to do the monitoring policing function of the manager dissipates um, when we have maybe this tipping function in there as the self-police in a sense with the customer policing that through tipping.
3: Exactly. And there's a principal agent problem between the customer and the waitstaff too, because different customers want different things from the waiter and waitresses. They, people think it's just a, a very uniform product, but sometimes you want to get moving so you can see the theater. Other times you want to be left alone. You want your glass refilled. You want the waiter, or waitress to chat you up a little bit. And all this kind of is, is enhanced by tipping because if the the wait staff knows at the end of the meal, if they did a good job of reading the customer signals that they'll be rewarded with 20%, maybe 25% or alternatively, if they do a bad job, they'll be punished by not getting a tip. They have a, a strong incentive to pay attention to the customer's cues and give them the best service possible. Yeah. So that's the idea behind the principal agent problem is that The manager doesn't have to monitor the the wait staff because the wait staff knows that if they do a really good job and the customer is familiar with the tipping culture, they're going to get rewarded for doing a very good job. There's also,
0: I think, an important learning aspect as a person who was in a restaurant uh, through my undergraduate and high school and whatever, uh, is that the the people who are, let's say, average servers uh, see how the good servers do their customer service. And they also talk at the end of the night. How much tips did you make? Mm-hmm. I made $60. Well, I only made 40 and, and it's like, oh, maybe I should be more like you because it is the good servers who inevitably, it'd be very rare that a good server did worse than an average server. And so I think that learning phenomenon between the customers also aids in management that it's kind of self-reinforcing uh, between the wait staff.
3: That's absolutely true. You can learn... To find out, oh, that person really knows how to read the signals of these different customers. Alternatively, if there's somebody who's really not cut out to be a server in a restaurant, um, they're going to learn that pretty quick. Yeah, that other person's always getting sixty dollars a night. I'm only bringing in twenty dollars. Maybe this isn't my life uh, goal. I'm calling,
0: yeah. they
3: should become an academic instead or something. Right.
0: <laughs> and that is it. That's a good way to uh, you know reflect the. Uh, some Christian principles or faith principles of calling, like God has the invisible hand i 've i 've reflected before is more of god 's hand I think in the market system, and so you know god 's kind of uh, the the market system is nudging people that you're that you 're calling is something else if you 're getting the twenty dollar tips versus the sixty dollar tips um,
3: it does sound cruel sometimes to say, well, if you're not a very good waiter or waitress or a haircut person or any other kind of service person, that you're going to lose your job over this. But on the other hand, you, know, you do have to find what your talents are best at, and having that honest feedback is really important for you to figure out what did God make you for? What are your best skills? Because yeah. oftentimes, we go down the wrong path.
0: Yeah. Yep, and so God speaks to us through uh, through prayer and also through tips. Sometimes I think it's, it's the moral of the story: the the money, the the profits of the system, and the tips involved in this particular case are sending signals—important signals. Absolutely.
2: So, so do mm-hmm. you find that maybe in different countries, where you know, in the same, uh, like, let's say, in hotels in different places, or you know, do you, do you find that this? the the tipping actually does increase the quality of service or do you have a a gauge for that or or
3: there hasn't been a lot of empirical work done on that but I just had an economist friend from Baylor University take a group of students to Britain where tipping is becoming less and less common so they're they're faking Away, their own tipping culture, and he noticed. He he got back to me, and he he had to tell me right away. He says, "You know, I read your paper, and everything that you talked about in your paper is going on in Britain. Is that since you don't have to tip at the pub anymore, nobody's coming to make sure that your drink is refilled or that your water glasses are refilled, and there's not a big uh, movement to seat you very quickly or move you throughout the restaurant." So. Yeah, there does seem to be a a little bit of of that going on, but it definitely needs more empirical research for some of those folks listening and you're looking for a thesis project to do. That's uh, wide open territory there.
0: And and it allows you to to kind of make up for other disadvantages you might have. I'm talking personally now. So I was a cocktail uh, waiter. I pushed drinks at kind of a blue-collar bar. All the other wait staff was female. And I would get comments every now and then, but it happened real early on. It's like, well, you're not as good at looking as the other ones, but you sure get me my drinks when i full. So like <laughs> me busting my tail and like really hustling to like go back and forth kind of allowed me to make up for my Maybe compensating. differential. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's, uh, you know, Milton Friedman's made a similar argument with other people that are disadvantaged in the marketplace that, that free flow of, of money and prices allows uh, potentially some people to make up for uh, whatever uh, disadvantages they might, might otherwise have.
3: Yeah, um, I don't want to insinuate anything, but uh, efficiency certainly can make up for a lot of ugly
0: <laughs> you Thank you. <laughs> well, this is the they don't. They, I guess they can Google me, but uh, yeah, they will find that I'm a fine-looking gentleman. as <laughs> Well, Russ, if you, if you, we still have your picture from 15 years ago, well, I didn't yeah, to say did that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Jacob. Yeah, I actually have a question. Thinking about how you the the role of tipping and kind of solving the principal-agent problem. So, a little it, from from my perspective. I think, um, so my family owns a bar and anecdotally, I think that in a weird way, it's almost worked in the reverse because especially with certain employees, we've had them training people on who to serve because they tip higher. So they'll tell people not even to worry about the 225 Bush light drinker (laughs) because they're not going to tip you. Mm -hmm. But those are the people that sit there all day and keep the lights on. Yeah. So I've seen in the same way that it almost creates a, you know, another dynamic of the principal agent problem. Mm.
3: Yeah, there definitely is that case, is that no economic institution solves all problems. There's always mm-hmm. trade there. So it's the same kind of issue that a pizza restaurant would have when the, the teenagers come after the high school football game. Nobody wants to serve that table because you know they're not going yeah. to it. <laughs> and you know they're going to create a lot of mess, right? You almost want to discourage those folks from coming in, whereas the restaurant owner says, no, every person that we seat um, at the counter or in, in tables is uh, a valuable customer. So that does cause a, a bit of a problem, and it, it can be a concern, but I think overall the advantages of having a good customer base that is well served and the word of mouth that gets around – about your business is, uh, wins out over those negative aspects of it.
0: All right. Well, I think that looks like a good place to uh, go to break. And uh, when we come back from the break, I want to get some of Tony's insights on the morality part of tipping and maybe even get into some uh, biblical references on uh, should we do it and, and why do we do it? So we'll kind of expand on those thoughts here in about another 30 seconds.
1: please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gordney Institute for updates on our activities and research. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. The Gortney Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing, faith and economics in action. If you or someone you know is looking for a college like that, contact Levi or Russ today.
2: Okay. So what we want to talk about this time uh, in this second half here is more about the sort of the morality of tipping. And, you know, before, before we came back, Tony, you were talking about the way to get into this is to think about, uh, you know, why would someone tip when they weren't planning on coming back to a restaurant? And, and I, I think for me, that makes a ton of sense because I think of myself as a pretty good tipper, but, you know, I'm also a creature of habit. So I'm, you know, if I go to a place, you know, I'm probably gonna come back the next month and I, I wanna make sure that they're not gonna uh, wanna throw me out or whatever when I get there. So I'm I'm fairly generous with tips. And the other thing is that I, I actually kind of feel a little bit obligated because I know about the the differentials and the minimum wage and I know that the owner of the business is probably paying the wait staff. A relatively low wage. Oh, that
0: know. greedy cat. Yeah, and so <laughs>
2: you know, it's sober. like it's almost, you know, I I just feel like I'm obligated. So, um how does that all fit into the sort of morality part of of tipping?
3: Yeah, the principal agent problem is a really easy economic explanation for tipping, and I I tip very well at the tavern that I always go to because uh, they they reserve seats for me up at the bar, and they also one time I didn't show up for a football game, and they had a seat reserved for me, and they actually called me on the phone asking if I was okay. <laughs> uh, happened to be. At a conference across the country, but, you know, there's an instance where, you know, if you tip very well, you'll receive good service in the future, including having them send out a search party for you. (laughs) Uh, But if I go to a restaurant that I know I'm never going to come back to, uh, why should I leave any kind of tip? I'm not going to expect any future service, you know, customized service in the future because I'm not coming back. And that's the big mystery. This is the thing that really befuddled Milton Friedman and a, a few other economists. And I think this goes back to an understanding of the thicker moral fabric of a market economy. Too often we teach our students that economics is just about self-interest and it, it gets them thinking about greed. But really markets need to exist embedded in a very thick moral civil society because trade requires trust. Adam Smith back in Wealth of Nations had a very simple formula for how societies get prosperous. he say the division of labor makes people more productive, but if you're going to have the division of labor, you're going to have to have extensive markets. And the bigger the market is, the less you know the people you're interacting with, and you don't know whether or not you can trust them. So a society that... Is going to trade on a wide basis with people involved in anonymous or quasi-anonymous trade needs to be a very trusting society. I need to know that if I go to Wyoming somewhere, that that restaurant on the side of the road is going to treat me very well. Uh, because if I don't think they're going to do that, if I don't trust them, then I'm not going to stop. Or I'm, I'm not going to stop at that restaurant and go there. So society, I think, has developed a lot of these rituals, these different uh, habits. You talked about um, habits a, a bit before, Russ. You feel habitual you know, in in your tipping customs. And that's important because it shows other people that I can be trusted. When I'm at a restaurant I'm never going to come back to, I'm going to burn some resources. right? I, I don't have to leave the extra $5 on the table, but I do to tell the world that, hey, I'm a trusting individual, and our parents taught us this. Our peers taught us this. Our churches teach us this. You know, be a good citizen. Be a good citizen to all others in the world so that you can, you know, foster trust. This is Matthew 7, 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And it's a great uh, way to actually enhance market interactions because if I know I can trust other people that I've never met before, I want to interact with them. And if I interact with them, market markets expand, we increase the division of labor, societies become more prosperous.
0: Yeah, and how would you relate that to Adam Smith's impartial spectator? Maybe bring in a little theory of moral sentiments into it. Uh, is that, have, have you thought about how that relates to it or is with, with, with some of your Smith stuff? We talked about kind of wealth of nations, but I'm thinking of that impartial spectator. Maybe if you got something to throw in on that.
3: Yeah, I'm a latecomer to Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. I only read it about five or six years ago. And when I read it, I just kept thinking about the golden rule all the time. And the idea behind Smith's impartial spectator is that um, whenever we engage in an interaction We kind of have this person floating in the back of our heads as a a third party looking at between us and somebody interacting saying, you know, if if I did it this way, what would this impartial spectator, this third person, uh, you could oftentimes think of it as God. What would God think about us if we treated the person this way? And that helps to kind of keep us on the straight and narrow. It helps us to treat people a little bit better because if you're not leaving a tip for that person who might not be making that much money and, and did a great job serving it, serving you, that impartial spectator or God is going to look back on you and say, nah, that's not really good. You're not being a very good person.
0: And in our, in the in our pre- previous uh, podcast with the Nobel laureate Vernon Smith, in fact, that was at the conference that I met you at the Mount Pelerin society. He brought up to be praised you want people want to be praised, but they also want to be praiseworthy, and that there's actual value in that, and that ties into The Impartial Spectator. His new book, um, I'd recommend to you, maybe we'll put it in the show notes again, just uh, because it, it does talk about some of the stuff. Uh, it, it's a little bit more on the econ side, um, so it's not maybe perfect for the layman, but um, certainly economic students and, and professors, I think, would get a lot out of it. It's It's a neat book, so
2: um, I think we can, we can link to our our episode with Vernon Smith as well.
0: Yeah, okay, yeah, put another link back to that, yeah.
3: I want to bring up this, too, that, you know, religious traditions, not only Christianity, but almost every major religious tradition uh, throughout the world has emphasized this issue of do unto others, the golden rule. Mm-hmm. and Also, you know, the way to prove this is through some kind of sacrificial giving. You uh, think of Abraham, you know, being asked to sacrifice his son is to prove your worthiness in, in God's eyes and, you know, giving your first fruits or these ideas of burnt offerings. The tipping at a restaurant, you know, you'll never go back to is an instance of this burnt offerings type of thing. Now, I, I should note that not all. Cultures around the world engage in pipping, but what's interesting is that all cultures around the world engage in something known as gifting in some way or another. There's a, a great book by an anthropologist called Marcel Mauss, uh, Mauss called The Gift, and he notes that throughout history and across all different cultures, people are always gifting one another. It's a way of developing trust, a way of expressing reciprocity with one another, which actually helps make societies flourish. And it ties very well with all the religious traditions that we know.
0: Well, I like your uh, notion of the thick moral fabric, and I, I think that can be built up in a number of ways. And certainly in our uh, society, that's where people, I think, go wrong with misunderstanding the market, that that moral component is Uh, an important component to keep things uh, healthy and and thriving. And because if we just think of where we're at today legally with contracts four inches thick uh, for a mortgage and and other things that uh, the more trust deteriorates or the more our moral fabric deteriorates, the more transaction costs there are for everything that we do, which makes it less efficient. So it's much easier to do a transaction on a handshake to farmers across the fence line um, that's actually a lot less transaction costs, right, than to have a bunch of the legalese. But as our impersonal global society grows, um, how uh, there, there's a level of this trust and morality that I think is important um, to keep it functioning well.
3: Yeah, the the whole issue of civil society and the way we have developed cultural norms to instill this trust in our own societies, but across societies is very important. I mean, if you ever go and visit another foreign country and you visit a family or a business partner there, they they oftentimes roll out the red carpet for you. There's a big bountiful feast, more food than anybody could have, Mm -hmm. in part because they're saying, we're sacrificing resources. We're essentially tipping you at a restaurant we know we'd never come back to because we want to show that, you know, in the future, if times are hard and you need to rely upon us, we're going to be there to rely upon you. And that's the kind of things that allow markets to flourish.
0: Yeah. Yep. And keep some more efficient and lower prices because you don't have to build in those transaction costs into it. So let's roll into this price discrimination price discrimination uh, concept that you had. Um, you have a graph and we'll link to your article that has the tip zone. So if you could just take a few moments to describe what's going on with, with that graph and how it's showing different people uh, uh, with maybe different tip zones, if you will, or whatnot.
3: Yeah, this is the other explanation for why we tip. And it's an economic type of argument that relies more upon self-interest. But the idea here is that everybody has a different reserve buy price. We value restaurant meals differently. That some people love going out to eat and will just have a wonderful time. Other people might not uh, value it that much. And if you're a restaurant owner, and you're working on a very thin margin. You want to attract as many people into your restaurant as possible. And you don't know what everybody's reserve buy price
0: is. And so and do- let, me just, let me just pause you for a second there. So just for our listeners, the kind of this reserve buy price idea is that I want to go out and get a steak potato dinner. And Levi's willing to pay $24 for that meal. I'm only willing to pay $15. Jacob will pay $10 everybody has a uh, subjective value to how they view the steak and potato dinner. And so that sets up ultimately for economics class, a demand curve with different people with different willingness to pay. So that's uh, where Tony's going with this reserve price. I just want to make sure people are clear on that for different, uh, different people because I love the way you, you bring this into it. Okay.
3: Yeah. And it's easier to see this on a graph. so Right. I right. uh, want to send people to, to read my paper. But the point is, is that the restaurant really needs to get people into the seats. If nobody's coming to the restaurant, they're still paying their, the mortgage or the rent on the building, they're paying the, the uh, have waiters stand around and not serve anybody, the electricity and all that. So they want to get as many people as they can to come in. And so they want to keep their prices as low as possible. And one way to do this is to shift the price of service of these labor costs over to other individuals that it allows them to kind of custom tailor the experience for what they want. So big tippers who love to have the wait staff lord over them or potentially just kind of leave them alone, if, if they get that kind of service, they're going to contribute to that labor cost there and um, the restaurant can keep the prices low. For other people, that it might not be that big a deal. They might not be as good at tippers, but at least they're coming into the restaurant right. like those teenagers on a Friday evening after the high school football
0: game. Yes, yes. And so uh, the point with this is that if we go to a fixed uh, no tip system where all the employers are paying a $15 living wage or whatever, uh, Lord help us if all that goes through nationwide, but that now is going to take people out of the restaurants, right? Because as that cost has to be bared into the price of the steak and potato dinner, then the net price overall goes up. And those people who were otherwise coming to the restaurant aren't. And so the, who's coming to the restaurant now, just the upscale customers, the, the big tippers, the people with high income, and we continually uh, divide the, pe- the haves and the haves nots whereas this is kind of a neat way of, of keeping more people at the table, if you'll excuse the pun. <laughs> yeah,
3: no, tipping, tipping does that well, and it, it has this odd effect of raising that, those prices, actually prices out poor people who, you know, maybe once a week or once every other week would like to go out for a meal it's kind of a nice thing to to enjoy. And those people are priced out. The other interesting part is the people who most benefit from that are the high tippers, right? They don't have to tip anymore. They actually get, you know, their experience at a much uh, cheaper price. And what we found out, and this is kind of interesting, is that When places that have tried to eliminate or push out tipping, this has recently happened in Washington, D.C., the people who were most opposed to this were the wait staff.
0: Yeah. Wait a minute.
3: Wait. We're serving these big tippers and now they're not tipping anymore. We're actually making less money when you're trying to give us more money as a base salary. And, and so it, the, the resistance to this uh, higher living wage or higher living sub-minimum tipped wage uh, is actually coming from the people it's designed to help, which is a really interesting
0: thing.
2: Yeah, right. Well, so I, I have one last question I want to spring on you. Um, and, and I think this is the question that, that no one has a good answer to. And so maybe since you are the expert on tips, you will have the answer for this. So, you know, the Sonic drive-in restaurants that some of us patronize on occasion. Now, know,
0: no, not everybody on our yeah. uh, podcast might have not have Sonics. We yeah, didn't so, have them up in Minnesota. Oh, really? so, maybe okay. just,
2: so Sonic is just a drive-in place. So you, you, you drive in and you sit in a little slot for your car and you push a button and you order your food. And then someone brings actually actually has to go outside and bring your food to you.
0: Like in the old movies, like on yeah. roller skates. Right? Yeah, there I you really Use roller skates, anymore. and some oh, yeah. some yeah.
2: of them do. I actually have been to a couple. That of Sonics right? that Yeah, the, the ones, ones that
0: the get paid more if you skate instead of walk. Oh, yeah. Sweet. There you go. Okay,
2: cool. And so the question I have is at a drive-in. Do you tip the person who just brings you your food and then leaves? Oh,
0: huge question. This is like monumental here. Yeah,
2: (laughs) It is a great question. And the (laughs)
3: principal agent problem is not in play as much because you know whether or not they're going to bring you the food or not. There's not a lot of customized service. It's it's the difference when you go into a, a coffee shop and you order a cup of black coffee and they pour it for you versus one of those fancy macchiato lattes with a half twist of caramel, whatever with the more customized service, you're going to tip more, but nonetheless, it doesn't hurt to tip. And in those kind of situations too, um, I oftentimes carry these smiley buttons, and I'll, I'll drop a dollar or two, maybe not a full 20%, and say, hey, thanks for bringing that out for me, and here's a smile to make your day. And I can tell you something, uh, people oftentimes appreciate that smiley button even more than the cash that you have on there, because <laughs> acknowledging them as a human being uh, on the same level that you are, because God made us all in his image, uh, whether or not we're a,
0: a waitress on roller skates or if we're an academic professor. Absolutely. Well put. Well, dr. Gill, uh, that looks like a good place to bring this to a wrap I think we've we 've conquered uh, the tipping uh, issues here and uh, hopefully hope opened up some people 's eyes that uh, going to a fixed tip system uh, does not look good. In fact, we should maybe put my son has a link to a video for the show notes, and it is an anti tipping little video that he showed me once, and he said, "Hey, Dad, what do you think about this so i, I and I told him today uh, when I left the house that this is what this episode was on so Uh, I think that might be a good little video if people want to see both sides. Uh, It's kind of just a fun little video, but this guy kind of goes on a rant on the various topics we did. But what I'm hearing is that the economic way of thinking would say our our local custom, or however it evolved over time, is a pretty darn good thing. And so, uh, Dr. Gill, I appreciate you being our guest today. And uh, on behalf of the Gordon Institute here at Ottawa University, Thank you for listening, and uh, if you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe on your podcast. Uh, we're available on all the major podcast apps, and you can share with your friends and whatnot. And other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.